This episode is sponsored by Newbie Remote Conf. Newbie Remote Conf is a two-day completely virtual conference hosted by none other than Charles Max Wood. If travel expenses are an issue or you just can't afford to be away from home for two days, then join us. It's virtual. This conference is focused on people who are new to programming who want to learn what the pros know or just get a leg up in getting a job and getting into the programming community. We'll have speakers from all over the programming community to help you stay current and a Slack room where you can connect with speakers and other attendees in real time. We'll also have a live roundtable video chat for attendees and speakers, plus we'll provide the talk recordings to you within days of the conference. Early bird tickets are available for $150 until May 12th, and the call for proposals is open until April 28th. So come join us at newbieremoteconf.com. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode number 253 of The Freelancer Show. This week, we've got Philip Morgan. Hello, hello. And me, I'm Reuven Lerner. We are your panel, and we will be discussing one of my favorite topics, and I think Philip's also, which is training. Um, and specifically, how can you make your training more effective by giving good exercises and questions for people to learn from? So let, let, me, let me frame that a little bit, because uh, Philip and I were talking about this before we started recording. I'll frame it a little bit, and then, Philip, you can sort of fill in the blanks of what I forgot to mention, and then we can, we can go at it. So... Here's the thing, and this is going to sound super ironic coming to a podcast. Um, it's very ineffective to teach people by just saying things to them. Um, so we can talk, we can talk and talk and talk all we want on the podcast, and you'll never learn anything, dear listener. Um, no, no, no. Um, from us, you'll learn. But, but in general, talking to people and lecturing is an extremely ineffective way of teaching. People might think they absorb it. They, they might be able to react on the spot. But medium and long term, they're just not going to remember and certainly not internalize what you're doing. So, uh, you know, it's well known that you want to then have people do things, create things, really start to work with it. And for that, we have exercises. That's why, at least in theory, children of homework. That, and that's why in my classes, I try to do a lot of exercises. But that raises the question of how many exercises, what types of exercises, what lengths, sort of what are some strategies to come with exercises that will be sort of hit that balance between not too long, not too short, not too easy, not too hard, be interesting, maybe even a little amusing, and then also effective and stick with them for a while. Um, and that's admittedly a hard balance to reach, um, and it takes a lot of trial and effort, but it's, it's worth the trial, it's worth the effort, um, or trial and error, I should say, because it's worth the effort because in the end, your students will learn more and they'll appreciate it more, and then you'll get many more gigs as a trainer too. So that's like my, my overview. I don't know uh, if you have something else to add there in like terms of outlining it. Two things. One is the, the larger context is I, I maybe every month or two have a conversation with someone who is a freelance developer and is interested in the idea of getting into training. And like they have the right personality for it, which means they, they don't, uh, resent getting questions from people who are less experienced than they are. <laughs> and, you know, they, they actually enjoy imparting knowledge and new skills to to people. So I'm not saying, like, that's the the only personality type that works as, as a trainer, but it helps if you have some of those qualities, right? Yeah, so, sure. So I, I'm just, like, kind of always interested on this show in helping that um, career options, not the right word, but like that, that way of packaging your services available to more people. Because I, I just think if, if you enjoy it, if you're like a, a reasonably good fit for that type of, of activity, it's like a great way to make money. And it kind of gets you out of the grind of like billing hourly. And it, I think it can be a, a vehicle for people to kind of move in, maybe not the only way they move into consulting, but it can be a path for some people to just get out of that kind of hourly grind. So that, that's the first thing, I, reason I wanted to talk about it. And the second is that this has always eluded me because I have an easy time putting content out there, structuring it so that the content itself makes sense, but the application part of it has always been a little bit more elusive to me. Like that, and so every time you mention, oh, I cut out, you know, I, I shifted the balance even further away from lecture and, and more towards doing exercises in my classes. When I hear you say that, Reuven, I'm like, oh, man, I got to I got to learn what Reuven's learning about that. <laughs> so drop, drop, some drop some science on <laughs> me, man. <laughs> 
So, so let me, let me, yeah, let me give you a, a little bit of theory and then we can go into some of the practice of it. So like the typical way that we think about learning is someone goes in not knowing anything and the teacher imparts words of wisdom. And then, you know, the students all get that. It's, it's as if the, the sort of speech goes into their heads and they get it. And now they know it also. It's, um, you, and, you know what it is? You know, that scene in uh, the matrix, the original matrix where, uh, like they just download some, like I know, I know Kung Fu now. Do you remember that? Yes. Did you ever see that yes, movie? Yes, yes. It's, it's, it's like that, right? Right, right. So, so the, what makes that part of the matrix so amusing is of course, everyone knows that it's nothing like that. Everyone knows that like, you, you can't possibly learn things that way. Um, and we all wish we did, we did. And so what happens is, you know, you go to class, you know, typically kids go to school and they hear something. And even if they're like great students and paying attention, they probably get some small proportion of what they're actually learning. Um, and so there's this really famous uh, psychologist named uh, Jean Piaget, and he was a Swiss guy. And I think he was actually a mathematician to start off with, if I'm not mistaken. And he had young children, and he did something which was totally unethical by modern standards, but made him very famous, uh, which was he watched his children and reported on them as research subjects. And he asked them all sorts of questions, and he watched them. And he came up with a whole set of theories about how people learn. And his big thing was basically that people do not learn, absolutely positively do not learn by hearing things. Um, he said they have to construct their own knowledge. They have to um, basically sort of almost teach themselves. So if you say something, let's say I'm saying now something to all of our listeners, and let's say they're all learning it. They're not learning it because their words, my words are going into their brains. They're learning it because they are taking what I'm saying, interpreting it, and turning to their own personal form of knowledge. Okay, so what does that mean? Like, what do we care? Well, so Piaget said basically that children are like scientists. And the reason that children learn so well is that they're constantly doing experiments with the world. They're coming up with theories. They're saying, let's see if this works. And if it works, great. And if not, well, I'll just try another theory. And over time, he said, people learn this way because, well, they're constantly coming with new theories and try constantly trying new things. And this is like a great, if you look at children uh, as they're explore, exploring the world, you actually say, oh, wow, like, it's true. Like, is it not a bad interpretation of what's going on there? Um, and so you have these people who are called constructivists. And constructivists believe that people should create their own knowledge. Like, given that people create their knowledge, we should give them the opportunity to do so. Okay, so that's like part one of the theory. Part two is coming, and then we'll get into, like, less egghead practice. Part two is um, this guy named Seymour Papert. And he's very famous. He's also a mathematician, or he was a mathematician. And he studied under Piaget. And he basically looked at how people learn effectively. And after a whole lot of, and I'm dramatically simplifying it, obviously, but after a lot of research and thinking, Papert basically said, it's true, people create their own knowledge. And the best way for them to do that is to create something that's of value to them. Um, now, Papert um, came up with a whole lot of these ideas and over many, many years. One of the most famous creations he had, if not the most famous, is something called Logo, the Logo programming language, which some of you might remember. I like do little, remember little that. <laughs> so this was like his brainstorm. He came up with it in the early 70s. And the turtle was actually this physical thing that walked around the room and dragged a magic marker. It then was made a programming language that you had like virtually dragging a magic marker around the screen. And then later, what did it become? It became robotics that you would then create a robot to drag the marker around the screen. So we've come, sort of come full, full circle. And the whole reason that Papert created a logo was basically he wanted kids to learn math. And how are they going to learn math? Through creating things, through actually exploring and creating stuff in this like world of mathematics as he described it. He was like, if you want to learn French, you go to France. Um, and if you want to learn math, you should be in a like math world that everything speaks math and then you'll sort of learn it internally. And that, that was the goal of Logo. So Papert said, well, you know, if before Piaget talked about constructivism, I'm going to talk about constructionism. And constructionism is this idea that the best way to learn, the best way to create your knowledge is by creating things. Okay, end of uh, lecture. So this means basically that there is some established learning um, and psychological research that says that talking to people is not going to teach them. Having them do things is going to teach them. Having them do things that are of interest to them, that are going to really sort of provoke them into thinking um, is the best way to do that. So our goal in training should be to maximize as much as possible the doing, and not just doing, but the creating, creating new things. 
Now, the best way to do this is to give people projects, right? So you go into a class, you say, hi, class. Uh, today, you will be creating such and such. Um, I'll be sitting here if you need me. Okay, it needs to be a little more guided than that, but that's a, like in theory. Mm-hmm. In practice, I do not do this. I don't do this because at the end of the day, I'm not interested in having my students just sort of learn over time. We don't have that luxury. We have a finite amount of time and they have to get through a curriculum. So I've got to be realistic and I've got to balance it out. And my balancing is usually when companies ask me how much do you do in terms of exercises, I say 30%. That's like the number I give and I think it's not inaccurate. So 70% of the time is spent in lecture. And when I lecture, it's really mostly discussion and going back and forth and them asking questions. And 30% at least is spent them solving problems. Um, And those problems are supposed to represent, hopefully, things that are as interesting as possible to them. So then now we're finally like getting to, well, what sorts of problems? Like, what do I give them to work on that will be interesting, not too hard, not too easy? And it's a hard question to answer, (laughs) right? There's no fantastic answer to this because it's a constant sequence of getting better. Mm-hmm. So I'll sometimes give, give exercises that are way too hard or even on a really bad days, impossible to solve. There are times when I give them exercises that just like on a whim, I came up with it and wow, it worked great. So I actually just recently saw something about stand-up comedy. I can't remember who it was saying, but like basically it's constant experimentation. You try out a joke. If it works, you use it again. If it doesn't work, you don't use it again. And I'm constantly, constantly experimenting with my exercises, trying new ones, seeing which works, both in terms of what are the anguished faces or how many anguished faces are there among my students. And if they're all looking at me like, what in the world are you talking about? This is impossible. Then I don't use that exercise again. Hmm. Or I break it down to the smaller pieces or something. So okay. here, okay. Yes, go, 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 go. Like now, now I, I think I know where, where I need to go with this, but I, I think it would be better to have some interactions as opposed to me just continuing a lecture. I did that enough today. <laughs> So my first question is, it seems like the the result of the exercise needs to be meaningful in order for, for it to not to be like, well, why, why did you have us do that, teacher? Yes. So how do, you, how do you think about that question of like, like on the one hand, it, it seems like you're saying the exercise can't be too ambitious, right? It can't be like, okay, go, go write a SAS in Python and just... I'll be up here if you have questions, right? right. <laughs> like the scope of it can't be too ambitious, but it seems like if the scope of it is, you know, the exercise is a right one line of code that prints the word hello world, that might be a little, I don't know. Is it really that granular? Do you see what I'm getting at? So one of the things that I've continued to be amazed by over time is that you cannot make exercises too granular, too simple. Oh, really? Okay. It's, it's really shocked me quite a bit because I keep like um, breaking things down into smaller and smaller pieces and saying, well, let's practice this, then this, then this. Mm-hmm. And people are consistently delighted when I do that. Um, and they feel like I'm teaching them more. They're learning more. It's like hammering home these, these ideas much more thoroughly. So for, for example, so there's this thing called a dictionary in Python, which yeah. is basically a hash table. Like it's a you know, basic data structure. And I used to talk about dictionaries for about half an hour. Mm-hmm. And then I'd say, okay, here's an exercise to do with a dictionary. And I teach this Python for non-programmers class. In fact, that's what I'm teaching like now. That's what I just came back from before we start recording. And with them, I realized, okay, I can't get away with that because they're going to be so confused. It's going to take them a while to get the syntax, get the ideas. So I broke it down into three separate exercises, one for each sort of typical use case of a dictionary. And I discovered this worked really well. I discovered, wow, people really understood what was going on way better than before. So I decided to start using it with all of my classes. And suddenly everyone started to understand dictionaries better, even the people who, like, theoretically, who have been programming for years. So I really think it's rare that you can break things down too much. And if you do, then you just say, okay, well, we'll do this quickly. You can even apologize. Like sometimes I'll say, I know this exercise seems really simple, but I want to make sure everyone's on the same page here. or I want to make sure everyone gets it. Or I'll use it as like a stage one in a longer exercise. And I'll say, we need to do this simple thing in order to get to the more complex thing. Interesting. Okay. So basically <laughs> you're saying, you said this very nicely, but it would have been like, Philip, your intuition is wrong about that. In, in, in fact, it is almost impossible to make an exercise too granular. Right. Well, that's at least been my experience. Yeah. 
And I'll also say, like, so, so sometimes, so for example, when I'm teaching object-oriented programming, um, my first, uh, like, like, I have a whole series of exercises based on ice cream. So first you create uh, an object that represents a scoop of ice cream with a flavor. And people are like, really? I have to do a scoop with a, like, like, there couldn't be anything more basic to create than that. I'm like, I know, I know, just wait. And we'll, we'll like, it'll get better and get more interesting. <laughs> okay. And then the next thing is I say, okay, we built a, uh, like a, a ice cream scoop. Now I want you to build a cone and put the scoops inside of it. And now I want you to make it so that there's a maximum number of scoops in the cone because we want to make children cry. <laughs> and now like, right. And like, so we sort of build up to larger and larger things. And without that base, it's just not going to work. And that base gives us an opportunity to get com complaints and comments from people saying, Hey, I have no idea what you're talking about. Do you are, do you ever run into people for for who for whom this approach does not work? They just sort of like it just doesn't work for some reason for them. I don't know about them, but I'm sure they exist. But but they haven't I'm, made themselves known to you, <laughs> right? Like every so often, I'll have a real jerk in my class somewhere uh -huh. who'll be like, "Oh, the, I mean, I just had this recently, you know. Oh, why am I learning Python? What a stupid, stupid language." I'm thinking to myself, "Why are you here?" Now, typically, then after like two days of the course, and especially after the course is over, those people come to me and say, wow, this is really cool stuff. I had no idea. And I think to myself very smugly, I know you had no idea. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I'm teaching this course. But they typically don't complain about the exercise. They complain more about what a crazy language, what a stupid way to do things. You know, I want a real man's language like C. <laughs> I mean, they don't say it in such terms, but like yeah, that's basically yeah. But I'm sure there are people who, I mean, look, also, the nature of my courses is such that if people just get bored, then they will, uh, you know, they'll just be on Facebook or do email or run out to supposedly a meeting or something. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, right? They're never, they're never or almost never going to say, this exercise is really dumb. Do you ever have exercises that are meant to help people understand what they don't know? so that they become more compliant to your dictatorial uh, management of the classroom. <laughs> I, I'm joking, but you know what I mean, right? Yes. Like where you're like, yeah. hey, let's sort of help you calibrate so that you understand that you need to pay attention. I don't do that necessarily like that, but I definitely, there are things that I'll say during the class that I know people will not do. And so I've learned over time, like certain exercises that include gotchas specifically meant to catch those people who didn't pay attention or oh. who don't like, go, go according to their instincts. So, for example, one of the exercises that I do often is I have this like uh, program that creates XML. And I was like, write a function that outputs XML so we can put, you know, the multi-billion dollar XML industry out of business in nine <laughs> lines of Python code. <laughs> so basically what happens is uh, in that function, if you return a value, it works beautifully. And if you print the value on the screen, it fails massively. Mm. Now, why did I, why did I, so I like, I put in one line of like the specification, you must have, give this output to this input. And I know that something like a third of the people are going to get that messed up. And it's not to say gotcha. It's rather to say, this is a common problem that people have. And I don't want you to be stuck with that problem in the future. So I purposely put in this thing to like make it semi-painful. Interesting. Um, and so when it doesn't work, I go over and say, well, think about this thing about this. And that I think that that like that pain point makes it easier for them to remember, or at least I'm hoping so. Right. OK, so it kind of, it's like it's sort of creating a memorable learning moment. Yes. Yes. I like that description much better. Or, than being or just illustrating for helping them see for themselves with like in a hands on way. Oh, this is a common problem you'll run into. Is it rather than sort of like saving them from experiencing that you're, you're helping them, uh, you're creating a situation where they get to experience that. Precisely. Precisely. How do you order exercises in terms of like when you think about, do you think about them as like little unrelated things? And like, if you go through enough of these, you'll get it. Or do you think about sequencing them or ordering them in some way? So typically I'll order them. Like simply I'll do exercises after each topic. So I introduce topic A, exercise on topic A. I introduce topic B, exercise on topic B. That said, I've definitely made mistakes in the past of the exercise solution requiring knowledge that we hadn't gotten to yet. 
So I've definitely tried to structure the exercises so that even if you don't have any experience in Python, right, you shouldn't need to know stuff from outside the class. It should just come from stuff we've discussed to answer this exercise. And then within a topic, sometimes I'll give multiple exercises, and then they'll either build on each other or build on the complexity. So it's very common. So for example, one, one of my favorite exercises, this is like a common one in programming classes, is to have a Pig Latin translator. By the way, fun fact, people in the UK have no idea what Pig Latin is. Uh, <laughs> I was really quite surprised, but what do you know? So I, like, I knew people in other countries would look at me funny when I said Pig Latin, but like didn't expect it here. In any event, so we do that. And then like two exercises, three exercises later, I say, by the way, remember that Pig Latin translator that went per word? Now I want you to translate a whole sentence. And so it means let's use what we did before and then sort of move up one level and get better and, and make it even more interesting. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So I definitely do that. Sometimes like with the, uh, with the dictionary uh, uh, like exercises, I've definitely found that like one of them, they're two of sort of equal difficulty. And so I'm not really sure which one to do first. So I've been experimenting sometimes this one, sometimes that one. Um, sometimes I say, well, these are equal difficulty, and we're just going to do both of them because I want you to get the practice. And people are often okay with that. So you are what, – to what degree do you do this also like online in, in like a course format or a, a less, less of a real-time situation, more of a sort of asynchronous online thing? Well, some and uh -huh. about to be a lot. Ah. So – some is in my email courses. So I have a whole bunch of email courses, and I think half of them have exercises. So I have one on using NumPy and Pandas, which are like two parts of um, sort of two data structures used in Python for data science. Mm -hmm. And there it's a 15-part it's a email course, and half of those are exercises. Or I should say half of those are exercise solutions. So it's like Monday you get a topic and here's some exercises. Tuesday you get the exercise solutions. Wednesday you get new topic and exercises. Then Thursday, you get exercise solutions. And I'm not sure how many people like do email courses with exercises, but I'm increasingly pleased that I do. Um, so that's like one thing. The other thing is that I, I'm not putting together, I mentioned on the podcast a few weeks ago, and I've like been delinquent and actually doing and finishing up, but this weekly Python exercise uh, service, that'll be a paid service that I'm doing. Um, and there, people will get it sort of online mailed to them. So I'm definitely thinking more and more about like how to do it not just in my classroom because I feel like it's a really useful thing to give people. Like they, people need practice. Everyone, everyone in my classes says, like if I ask them what they want, they're like, we want more practice and we want practice after the class is over so that we can continue learning and get even closer to fluency. Mm -hmm. Interesting. I mean, how, so in that sort of asynchronous world, okay, so exercise on day zero, answer on day one. Do you, how do you like grade, grade the results of the exercise or how do you people help people interpret what they did wrong if they did something wrong? So two, two things, or let's, let's say three. Number one is I don't. <laughs> <laughs> Number one is I, I, I just sort of hope people are going to be smart enough, motivated enough, inter interested enough to sort uh -huh. of compare my answer with their answer. Got it. Number two is my solution doesn't just say the answer is five. It says, here, let's walk through how to solve it. And I really think that a big part of teaching programming of any sort is teaching them the technique, right? How do we get, like, not what does point B look like, but how do we get from point A to point B? Mm. Um, and so I'll sort of say, well, here's, and I do this in class also. When I solve every exercise I do, um, without fail, I solve um, in front of the class, step by step, sometimes purposely putting in bugs. And I say, I put a bug in here. You're going to see in a moment why it bites us. You know, some people will sometimes do it this way and you'll always hear someone go, oh, I did it that way. Um, <laughs> and like, I feel like going through it with them piece by piece and remarking on it, what's called in the learning business is a think aloud. Okay. Really have to understand not just the content, but the process. So I try to do that in text as well in my email. Courses. And the third thing is I tell people the email course, hey, how'd you do? What'd you get? Like, let me know. And I occasionally have people actually email me and say, I did it this way. And I'm kind of bad with responding to email on a regular, like on a good schedule. But when people email me like about that, it might take me some time, but I'll definitely get back to them and say, hey, you know, that was pretty cool. It worked because of this or it didn't work because of that. And I try to respond to what might have been their misconceptions or mistakes. Interesting. I'd never, I'd never known that word, a think aloud. I used to do that when I was teaching... Microsoft training classes, generally what I was trying to do is two things, trying to help people actually 
be able to get a job as a you know, network administrator or a network engineer. And that also helps them pass the certification test. So we would take these, I would do that. I would like, we had these practice test versions of the real thing and we'd go through the test together and just talk through like how I think about the, the answers or, you know, how I think about the question and solving it. A think aloud. I like that. <laughs> Let's have a think aloud, folks. <laughs> well, it's great. Like think aloud is typically used in education research when you want to know, like, what is this person thinking as they're doing something? Uh-huh. So, so you say to them, so while you solve this problem or while you, you know, color in this picture, whatever they do in education research or passes for research nowadays, right, you, you have them describe it to you. And um, you can get a lot of insights that way. Mm. By the way, I'll, I'll mention that like also when I'm like sol- when I'm solving problems or when I'm going around helping people, I'll mention that a little bit as well. But it's very, very common for me to encounter errors. And I say, wow, that's a really interesting mistake. And then I'll sort of mention it in my slides the next time, my presentation the next time and something like I really try to take advantage of people's mistakes so that I can sort of instruct people not to do that or create an example out of it for the future. You know, I'm not going to make fun of them. On the contrary, I'm going to Mm -hmm. use it to to help people avoid this problem. Yeah, for Um, sure. Yeah. And then we just mentioned like the going around. So I know I've spoken with some people who like are constantly walking around and sometimes people even have teaching assistants and I do neither. I say to people, let me know if you have problems. And typically my students are, you know, active enough that they will, that they'll, they'll call me over. So for instance, the class I'm doing now in the UK, um, when I give an exercise, they're like constantly saying, you know, it's funny that they, like this guy says, can I borrow you for a moment? And, uh, <laughs> very, very polite, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but it's, but it's great. Then I go over and, uh, we, we, you know, I look at his code and sometimes often, in fact, especially with his intro courses, I've seen these mistakes many, many times before. And so I can try, this is always my aim, to like give them a hint as to the direction they should go in without like giving away the whole store. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I imagine with, well, I guess it depends on how complex the code is. I, I was going to say, like, I, w- I would walk around when people were, during lab time, when I was running training classes, and I could sort of tell, like, where they were, because the labs, labs were very standardized and... I just figure with code, it might be a little more complicated to look over somebody's shoulder or more distracting for them, perhaps. Well, it depends on like the complexity, as you said. And like a lot of these exercises are things I've given, uh, you know, a dozen, two dozen, a hundred times even some of these exercises. So it's funny. Sometimes some will say it's not working for me. Always my, my favorite complaint, right? It doesn't work. I say to them, that's sort of like going to the doctor and saying it hurts somewhere, right? Tell, give, me a, <laughs> give me a slightly more specific uh, response. Yeah. But if they give me the error message, I can often without getting up say, oh, have you done this? Uh-huh. And they'll be like, whoa, how'd you do that? <laughs> I'll say, well, you know, enough other people uh, made the same mistake before you. Um, but, you know, debugging at 100 yards is, is, is a pretty cool parlor trick. So you, I think I remember you saying you, you, you will explain a concept first before you have people do exercises to uh, practice or learn it or constructivism it. <laughs> is that always, in your experience, like kind of the best pattern to follow? Or are there times where you, where you might do an exercise first? Or uh, what are your thoughts about that? I guess the closest I'll come to doing like exercise first is that I'll sort of just show them a, a new way to do things maybe, right? So I'll, I'll have them do it one way and I'll say, I know this feels like really outrageous to be doing it this way, but try, like, let's do it this way first and then we'll see the, the better way to do it. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I, just, uh, I think I always like to introduce the topic first, especially since I don't always know what the levels are of the people who are in my class. Oh, right, right? right. Some people might have a ton of background. It's usually mixed. Intro courses, I feel like I need to do it little by little. And advanced courses, advanced courses are sort of just a mess in general because people, everyone declares themselves to be advanced. Um, <laughs> and, so, and so you get this like wild mix of backgrounds uh, that might or might not match up with the description of the course. You know, that's a, actually a super interesting question is how, how could you define prerequisites such that people aren't incentivized to uh, basically lie about their uh, or, or just uh, uh, misinterpret what, what advanced means? So I have this problem whenever I go to China because they see it like so they call my class advanced Python. And it's just like, it's not. <laughs> because when I have done advanced Python with them, um, like people aren't ready for it. And in fact, I go around the room and I say, like, what's your experience with Python? 
you know, welcome to Advanced Python. What's your experience? And a very standard answer is, I've heard Python is a really great programming language. I hope to learn a lot from this class. Oh, wow. That's clearly like, someone who's not spent much, much time in, in, a, in a code editor. <laughs> right. So no, these people are very smart. And the thing is, it's used as a, I think, as a reward from their company to like, you know, reward the, the best, the brightest, the most advanced people. But like, it's not an intelligence test, right? I, you can be very, very smart and just not have experience in a certain language. So I get around this in a few ways. In China, I just typically call it advanced, then give them the intro course. Mm -hmm. And what usually happens is uh, two or three people will complain that it wasn't advanced enough, uh -huh. and the rest will be like, wow, this is exactly what I needed. <laughs> uh, <laughs> what I've done, though, so I gave a course about a year or so ago. One, one of my clients asked me to give an advanced course. And I showed up and I gave it, and I saw that most of the people didn't know what I was talking about. So I dumbed it down, like, or I made it more basic. And then I got very active complaints that this is not okay you know, it was not advanced enough. So I pulled out my old standby technique, which is the pre-class survey. And you say, here are 20 topics. Rank yourself from beginning to intermediate to advanced. And you send it out to all the participants in advanced. And then you discover that 90% of the people say they have no idea about any of the topics you're going to talk about. And so that gives you ammunition with the training manager if they come back to you and say, hey, People complain it was too basic. You can say, no, well, maybe they complained, but I got these surveys back, and this is what they told me about the makeup of the class. Huh. And then you're you know, covering yourself, and it, it, it tends to work out okay. Interesting. Yeah, I just was looking at the Wikipedia article for vanity sizing or size inflation. <laughs> Do you know what that is? No, oh, I, I'm going to guess, but I'm going to let you just define it first. The phenomenon <laughs> of ready-to-wear clothing of the same published size becoming bigger in physical size over time. So in the 1937 Sears catalog, a size four, this is, I, this feels terrible because this is mostly a thing with women's clothing. I'm not like picking on women here, but it's just, it's a phenomenon that tends to be specific to women's clothing. So in the Sears catalog in uh, 1937, a size 14 dress had a bust size of 32 inches. In 67, the same bust size was called a size eight. So the same physical size dress went from a 14 to an eight, kind of like what you're talking about with people rating themselves advanced. That's great. Perhaps. I mean, I mean, I don't know if great is the, the right description there, but yes. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, I had another question. With a, Do you notice the difference between, I don't know that, I mean, most training for software development is going to be for adults, but do you notice the difference with like the level of patience that an adult learner has versus, I mean, you have kids, your kids are probably exceptional, but do you notice any difference <laughs> between what I you wish. see with adults, like where they kind of... Yeah, they just maybe lose patience if things aren't working out or what have you noticed there? Hmm. I don't know if I've seen so so my 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 kids, who whom I, I, I love dearly clearly, but I, I've had very mixed results, like different kids have, have you know mixed results teaching them different things. Because you know, learning from your parents is always uh fraught with danger. Or at least, you know, emotional danger. But um I would say my kids are sort of look, the thing is Kids are unfortunately primed nowadays to think that learning is bad, right? They go to school. Oh, I don't want to learn. I don't want to go to school. I think like my, my daughters are okay on that front. Uh, my son less so. The difference is like adults who are coming to professional training, they want to be there typically. They see it as a path to improve themselves. Um, they see it as a path to like, you know, get, get better, either better jobs in their current company or new jobs in another company. And so they, they want to learn. I mean, there's limited to how much they can learn a given day. Um, so even though I'm supposed to finish at 5.30 sometimes, um, if I see, as I, as I describe it, like their brains are leaking out of their ears, I say, okay, we're, we're just going to cut this short at 5. And there's often a lot of, many sighs of relief there. But no, I think, I think they, they really, typically the people who come to my class, the ones who are not sent by their boss, right? The ones whose bosses say, you must go learn this, forget it, right? They, they, they might be okay, but they're often not. But the ones who are like, I'm going to take this opportunity to improve myself because I know this will, will lead to better jobs, um, they're great. And they'll ask lots of questions and they, they want to really do this. Yep, that's pretty much what I saw also was there were maybe, I don't know, it's probably the 80-20 thing. You know, most people saw it as, as an opportunity. Their company was paying for it. And 20% saw it as like, ugh, geez, really? <laughs> <laughs> right. I, but I, I, will, I will say there's a, there a real difference. This is going to sound terrible, but 
this could be selection bias or some of this is probably some cognitive bias on my part, but the, the people who were sent by the state government and, and the company I worked for when I was doing training would invariably, they would have a contract with the state government to, to train their people. Those people were, did not follow the, uh, more than 20% of them were not super jazzed about being there. <laughs> I see. I see. Yeah. Unfortunately, not, not a huge surprise. If, again, if you're being told you have to go to this sort of training, it's going to ruse your motivation quite a bit. Yeah. So I've been giving a lot of thought lately to sort of the types of exercises I give. Like, you know, can I come up with some sort of taxonomy or description? Like, cause if I want to come up with a new exercise, then how do I do it? And what are the sort of paradigms I can use? So one, one thing is like, as I mentioned, hitting that sweet spot between easy and hard is often hard. And so the first time you give an exercise, it will almost always fall flat, right? And I'll try it out. Well, oh, I'm sorry, this didn't work out. I'll even sometimes say it's the first time I'm trying this exercise out. Um, sometimes I'll tell the story about if it's really a hard exercise, un, you know, un, unhappily, unnecessarily hard. I'll tell them the story that you might have heard about the, uh, the, the math grad student who still shows up to class late and he sees three questions on the board and he comes and he, and he writes it down. He comes back the next week and says, Professor, I'm so sorry. I tried to answer those questions on the board from last week for homework and I couldn't get them right. And the professor says, what are you talking about? He says, you know, like. The things you were on the board. He said, oh, those impossible to solve problems. You solved one of them. <laughs> and this is, a, this is a true story. Like this actually happened. So oh, wow, I forget. Wow. I looked it up. So I say to them, you know, well, if one of you solves this, like you can go down in history. And then, you know, we all chuckle about it. And then we, we move on. And next time around, I try to make it a little more uh, like more obvious that I know what I'm doing. But like, uh, you know, I'll try things. I'll try new topics. I always try to make the topic at least somewhat amusing or somewhat relevant to their lives or so something they can latch onto, right? So the ice cream example is, you know, a good one, I think. You know, I often do address books or one that I did today was, you know, tell me where you've traveled, city, comma, country. Um, and then let's come up, like alphabetize this list by country and then by city. Um, and the smaller and sort of more easily graspable you can make it, the better. What you don't want to do is have like this really crazy complex exercise that takes half an hour just for people to understand and let, like, let alone solve. Like they should be able to grasp it, right? It's sort of like, an ele think of it as an elevator pitch, right? Like, <laughs> you know, you, you have 90 seconds to describe your exercise, go. Right, right. So within that world then, I've definitely found like a bunch of different things that I like doing. So one of them that I don't do so much, which I know other people do, I call this monkey see, monkey do exercises. Meaning, like, first I'm going to do this on the board, or I'm going to do this in front of you and like to demo it, and then you're going to do it also. And I tend to do that, I guess, a little more in my data science classes, just because that's more complex and harder for people to grasp. But like, I, I just would rather have people do new and interesting things rather than things that I've already demonstrated. Uh, but I know that a lot of people do that. Like, I'm going to create a, fu a function that sums numbers. Oh, now that I'm done, you go create that same function on your computers. How does that work? Did that work well for you? Another thing, and this is like one of my favorite things, is take something people know and re-implement it. Right? So like the sum function. Everyone knows how that works, presumably. Um, so go implement it yourself because you're going to know whether it works or it doesn't. You know, ask uh, you know, a function or a pro program that uh, asks the user to enter a bunch of numbers and produce the average of them. The, the Unix word count program, I often have people implement that from scratch on their own. Um, all these little things that you can demonstrate that people understand, and then like they can quickly sort of get to, get to work coding and trying to do it. And it's also a feeling of, wow, I did something that real world coders do. Like this is a real program that I created myself. It's not just a toy. That's awesome. And then there's like the longer project, like, like I, I want to say project because project, as I said earlier, like I don't do them that much, but like the longer ones that build on themselves, like the ice cream thing that I can easily spend a day, uh, I can spend a day easy, eating ice cream, but I can spend a day like talking about and um, getting people to write these ice cream things. Cause like first it's, as I said, the, you know, the bowl or the bowl or the cone that has a limited number of scoops in it. But then we can have, you know, the larger one. Right. So, you know, we made the children cry before. Now we'll make the parents cry. And then like we want to be able to estimate um, how many scoops, you know, how many scoops have we created so far? What was our production? What is the price? And on, on, and on. Right. So you can just take these little nuggets of ideas and expand them almost infinitely. And people will sort of get into it to some degree. 
And I'm like, oh, now I'm like, I'm making this into more of a serious program. We started from something so trivial. I can't believe it. That's, I mean, I'm realizing that <laughs> like occasionally I will try my hand at writing something in Python because that's the language that I spent some time trying to understand, read a book about. So the way I, <laughs> that's exactly how I do it is I'll start with like the most basic thing and, and just build from there. So I, I think that at least for some people, that's how they might do it in the real world. Oh, that's, that's, I mean, I tell people that's how you should do in the real world. In fact, I can sort of prey upon, uh, like what I know about large corporations. So I say to them, tell me, has anyone ever taught you about agile software development? And everyone like groans and rolls their eyes and like wants to just hit me. I'm like, I know, I know, right? You know, agile, it used to be a good thing. And then it turned into a billion dollar training industry. And you know, now, but I was like, but there are some key ideas in agile that are really good. And one of them is do the minimum possible to get to the next stage and work in these really small iterations. Like don't sit down and try to write the whole thing at once. Cause you'll just, you'll, you'll fail. And so, Again, one of the things I like to show them when I'm solving the, the, the problem, solving these exercises in front of them is, okay, I've written a line. Let's check it. Now I've written two lines. Let's check that. And constantly going back and checking myself and showing them this is a normal thing to do. Yeah, that, I mean, that is exactly right. I'm like, okay, before I save this to file, I'm going to just print it out to screen just to see if the right thing is coming out. And then I'll add the save to file functionality. Right. And I should add, like, one of the things I also do at the end of each day, and I tell people about this in advance, is I send them a zip file with uh, all the things that I did in front of them. Because I, I mostly don't use slides. I mostly do live coding. Um, so what I do is I say, you know, already, you can expect to get, at the end of the day, all the things we worked on together, or all the things I showed to you. And that, first of all, helps them to relax a bit, because they don't need to follow, write down, take pictures of everything I'm doing. And second of all, it means that after the class is over, they can review it and think about it on their own, uh, which many of them will want to do. Also, it means that if someone emails me, like I, I create these files uh, every day and I name them and number them according to the company I'm at. You know, so, like, you know, so I'm at company X um, on this date. So it means if someone emails me six months later and says, hey, can I have the files from the course we did? I'm like, yeah, sure. I've still mm -hmm. got that, mm -hmm. uh, which is like good for brownie points, too. Let me tell you. <laughs> nice. Interesting. And people are very appreciative. Like people really want – oh, that's, that's the thing. I think I've mentioned on the show before, but it can't say it enough. Every year, I reduce content and increase exercises in each of my classes and people are happier. You would, you would think that people just want to like squeeze in as much content as possible. And empirically, I can tell you from my experience, that's just not true. People want to feel like they're learning and gain a sense of accomplishment. So what I'll do is every year, I'll, uh, and I, this is not like a, a process where, hmm, what things will I take out? I'll be like, you know, I never have a chance to talk about this. And when I do, their eyes glaze over. So let me just dump this topic or I'll move into my advanced class. And then I'm sort of solving multiple problems at once. First of all, I'm solving the problem of, you know, how, how, do, how do I make them happier? So that's always good. Second problem I solve is how do I fill up with more stuff in my advanced class? Right. So now basically like my advanced classes are becoming fuller and fuller of content because I'm just moving things from the beginner class to the advanced class. So that's like, you know, great for me because I've, I've more of an upsell. It's great for my students because they're learning more. Um, you know, it's like really an overall huge win. I know. I just, I, I can't overemphasize how, how strong the temptation is at first when you're, I mean, if, if you're teaching out of somebody else's curriculum, this is maybe not an issue, but this is the first time you sit down and say, okay, I've, I've been, I have an opportunity here to teach a class where I design the curriculum. The first time I did that, the temptation was irresistible to pack it to the gills with, with just everything under the sun, right? Because I think there's this little nagging voice that's like, oh, wow, you know, you're on the hook for now, not just delivering the training, but creating the content and and people are going to judge you based on like the, the volume of content, I guess, is, is what I was thinking. And you're right, right. It's just sort of corrosive to, to creating actually a good learning experience to do that. Yeah, I definitely look. I, I mean, I'm trying to think just recently. Oh, I know. I know. It was with a company I was working with. So they like dug out the curriculum that I had, a syllabus that I had created back when I started working with them years ago. 
Oh, and wow. Somehow they, <laughs> and somehow they said, is this still accurate? And I looked at it and I, I was horrified by what I promised we would go over. Because like, there's just no way to do justice to even half of it in any sort of way. Yeah. I mean, I mean, one of the things I also try to do is go into more depth. And depth, not necessarily like syntax, but depth of understanding. Like why do things work the way they do? There's a logic to it. So like some of these really banal nerdy things like variable scoping, like which variables are available when, it turns out that after ignoring that for years and not teaching it for years, I now make it a, a centerpiece of my course. Why? Well, first of all, no one knows it. And second of all, once you know it, it explains everything else in Python. <laughs> like it just makes so much sense. The language, like all of a sudden you understand it better. And I want people to go away with the sense of, oh, that, like now I get it. I know how to reason about this language more. Yeah. At the same time, I guess I want to say to folks who are interested in there for maybe, you know, moving into training. Don't, don't let this stuff that we're freaking out about keep you back, hold you back from doing it. It's, it, it's part of the learning curve to, Absolutely. Uh, you know, A, I mean, there's so many things like maybe, uh, do you even remember the first time you did a training class? Or has it been so many years? <laughs> no, like I, remember, I mean, uh, Checkpoint asked me to come and do some uh, Perl training for them. And I, I honestly, like, they invited me back. <laughs> so it, it couldn't have been as horrible as I remember. But I, I know, like, really looking back in horror, I didn't exactly know what I was doing. Do, do you remember the moment when you first realized when you were in front of a group of people that this thing that you thought you understood back and forward, you really didn't understand? You, you didn't understand it well enough yes. to explain it. Yes. So I, I should add, like, so first of all, what Philip said is is right. Like, we're we're talking from like the the perspective of a lot of experience, and that it's a lot of painful experience of figuring out, like, making a lot of mistakes. And as long like it's okay to make mistakes, but there are different kinds of mistakes, right? And and one of them is to think that you need to know everything. So when my students ask me a question, I don't know the answer. I am so clearly excited and happy. And I'm like, look, I don't know, but I'm going to find out because this is how I learn things. And I tell them at least half the things I teach are based on questions I didn't know the answer to and I had to research. And I want to set them at ease that like, A, I'm happy, like I'm learning also. B, I'm not embarrassed not to know things. And C, I'm going to use this as an opportunity to not only teach them, but learn more myself. And I feel like that combination of attitudes works not only to get rid of any embarrassment of, oh, my God, how did I not know that? But also them wondering, who the hell is this guy who doesn't know anything? <laughs> right, right. Yeah, so it, it's – I don't see any way that anyone could start training without having to in, endure some of that discomfort of thinking they knew something backwards and forwards and realizing they didn't or, or you know – over designing their own curriculum and it and it turns out to be like a, a nice try buddy but that wasn't very great like i just certainly you can get help from advisors mentors that kind of thing but i think you do have to really experience some of this stuff firsthand yourself to really get it which is exactly what you're saying about the whole exercises thing <laughs> yeah, I thought that it's like a meta thing here. Like yeah. you, you have to, you have to, you know, get experience training to to learn how to train. Yeah, you really do. It's, it, I mean, I, I guess maybe that would be a nice way to wrap this up. Is can you think of any exercises <laughs> that a trainer could try themselves? Like they kind of assign themselves one or two exercises that are a granular piece of the larger experience of running a training class, where they might develop some skills or shorten the learning curve by, by self assigning these exercises. I don't know about exercises per se, but I strongly encourage anyone who's thinking of doing training to speak as much as you can at conferences, at local user groups, at meetups, to do webinars. Each of those is a great opportunity to try out material, see how it flows and, and understand where people have questions and, and problems and, and feed that back into what you're doing. And the more you do that, like, I mean, I try before I teach any new course to, to teach as a webinar or to teach as a, a talk at a conference or something. And um, so if you ever come to my, one of my webinars, congratulations, you're a guinea pig. But a nice one, a nice one and a welcome one. And, and then I sort of have more of an idea of what's going on, but it's still often flying blind. 
I mean, the first time I took, I taught my data science class, I told them, like I, I said, this is the first time I'm teaching this course in this format. There will be things that I don't know. And you're going to ask me questions I don't know. I'm going to write them down and I'm going to email you after the course is done with all the answers that I found. And boy, oh boy, did I write down a lot. Oh my God, I could not believe how much they asked that I didn't know. And nowadays, like I'm now at the point as with my programming classes that I know. So writing things down is useful also. Um, and really just don't be embarrassed about it. you. You, you will. You, and also if you don't let on that you're embarrassed and you don't know anything, they won't know either. That's one of the sort of shocking things about this too. It takes a lot for a trainer to uh, sort of demonstrate pure ignorance to such a degree that people hate them. Usually there's going to be so grateful that you're coming and talking and you still know more than they do that it'll be worthwhile. Um, and it's fun. Like it, at the end of the day, it has to also be enjoyable for you. If you're having fun, it will that your students will notice it and they will be happy to learn more from you. Uh, and they'll invite you back and then you'll do it even better. And, and just as like a ballpark, I feel like it takes me 20 times of teaching a course until it's really smooth. So like, it's totally normal to need a lot of time for that to work. Yeah. How about you? Any, any suggestions, comments about this? Yeah, uh, you, you got all the good ones, man. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, just starting small is the spirit of what I was going to say. But it's exactly really what you said about you know, do it as a webinar first or as, a, as an IRL talk at a meetup or just find some venue in which you can um, be the, the person who's teaching on, on that material, but you know, do a compressed 30 minute version of it with 30 minutes for Q and A or something like that. So really I would just be repeating what you said. I think those are all great ways to have your first like proper real teaching gig, not make you want to quit. Because there, there were times like when I started out teaching where I was like, I don't know if I'm cut out for this. It's, this is like, this feels like something I should quit and just try something different over. And it never was really. It just, it always was like, wow, I was surprised that it happened. When I say it, I mean, you know, some experience of like feeling like a dummy or feeling like, wow, what business do I have teaching these people? So anyway, uh, yeah, what Reuben said. <laughs> I'll also take a page from, from your book, I guess quite literally, which is it's so tempting to say, not just like I can stuff lots of, like, lots of information into uh, one course, but I know about all these different things that I find interesting. I will offer courses in all of them. I strongly recommend that you start off by teaching in the thing you know best and like most and that you think there's the greatest business advantage to and then adding courses to it. So like, I mean, I used to say, oh, I teach courses in Python and Ruby and Git and Postgres and regular expressions. And over time, I've reduced that partly because I just see how much demand there is for Python. And because like I can sort of scale it up and say it's Python for this and Python for this and Python for this. And I think it also adds to my brand that I'm not the training guy in a thousand different things, but the training guy on a handful of topics that I really know well and that I'm constantly improving on. So I, I've recently seen some people talk about training and they sort of mention every single topic they know, and I would recommend not doing that. Yeah, that's sort of the, uh, that was a thing that I saw contract trainers do back during the, the first training boom in the, in the 90s, or what I, would, I thought of as the first tech training boom, um, where they would just, it was just kind of like this portfolio of stuff they could teach, and by making it bigger, they had more opportunities to go out and do week-long training gigs. But if you're, if it's something you can, it, and the issue there was different because it was like, well, there was X number of classes that Microsoft Learning had out there in their catalog and like you could sort of get to the point where you could teach any of those classes it, because it was a, a constrained enough uh, subject area that you could do that, at least within like, like I, I once tried to kind of cross over from the system engineering classes to a SQL um, class and that was not good. <laughs> I was out of my depth, in other words. Yeah, if, if you're kind of doing your own thing and you're picking your own topic, there's usually the opportunity to go as deep as you want. By the way, Reuven, I was, when I was emailing you the other day, I think you might have a LinkedIn profile update opportunity if you're really not 
focused on the post-gray stuff and whatever else. Yeah, I think I thought I removed that from someplace, but maybe I didn't. All right, I'll, I'll I, take a look at that. I don't know. You know, this plugin reportive kind of pulls people from. Oh yeah, you're right. Info from that. people's uh, social media profile, and so I don't know where it was pulling that from. I'm guessing LinkedIn, but I'm not 100 percent sure. Oh, you know what? I removed Ruby. Not that I just like Ruby, folks, but like there's just not a lot of opportunities for it. You're fired from the that, show. And I see that like mentioning data science, right? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, data science has like a higher profile. But I should just, actually get Postgres because also like it's a matter of supply and demand, right? And so if I if I ask to teach a Postgres course once a year, that means there's a lot more updating I need to do to that course before I teach it each time, and that's just really annoying. Yeah. Um, well, so much as I love Postgres, like keeping up to date on it to teach it is uh, is more work that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's, this was, for me anyway, super interesting. I'd say we wind our way to picks here. Yeah, sounds, sounds like we should probably do that at some point. All right. You got any picks, Philip? I have, I have these cats that I love the heck out of. Uh, one of them likes to chew cables. Not, <laughs> not good. So, like, this cat has already destroyed a, I don't know what it was, a $70, $80 Apple laptop charging cable <laughs> that one i'm protecting with what is it called tech flex i think it's like this uh, cable sheathing thing that's working pretty well but my pick this week is that i've discovered there are uh, all sorts of usb cables that the the, the outer sheath around the cable is a sort of coiled uh, metal like stainless steel for example and that's that's my latest attempt in the ongoing struggle to uh, make my make my the various cables I have lying around my house resistant to the very uh, sharp, very motivated teeth of of one of my cats, and so far it seems to be working. I, I can't report definitively. I'll drop in a link to one of these in the show notes. But I, if you just you know go to your electronic mega retailer of choice, like in my case Amazon and like search for metal or steel uh, and the type of cable you're looking for. I Like, you know, two weeks ago, I didn't even know this existed, but now I know there's actually quite a few of them. So I'm not going to recommend just one, but just this category of products uh, could be useful <laughs> if you also have a cat with an appetite for cables. Does the cat, like, do your cats hurt their teeth on this cable? Or are they smart enough to figure out, hmm, this is not yummy, I will stop. You know, I've noticed that he will take a few trial bites and then give up. So I assume that he's intelligent enough to know that, yeah, he's not going to like, you know, he's got pain receptors in his mouth the same way we do. So I assume he's he's not going to harm himself. I guess I should have checked before I got the cable. But also I'm kind of like, well, that's your problem, buddy, if you... uh if, if you're that into chewing into a cable, I've never seen him chew on anything else as, you know, as, as hard as metal. So I, I just, I assume he, he recognizes the shape of it visually and he's like, oh boy, there's, there's a chew toy. And then he chews on it and gives up pretty quickly. So I think it, I think it's all okay. All right. And if not, your uh, next week's pick will be get a good veterinary dentist. That's right. Yeah. Next week's pick will be you know, some sort of dental insurance plan for cats. Anyway, that's my pick for this week. <laughs> Excellent. So my pick is a new uh, uh, website that I found that I haven't bought from, but it is fascinating, fascinating to me as a productized consulting offering. And I may buy from them. It's called Music for Makers at musicformakers.com. And it's this guy, I can't even remember his name. I'm really embarrassed. I should have checked this before the show. But it's this guy who is a, here, I'll, I'll look at it as I'm uh, speaking. Uh, he's a musician. And uh, here we go, Logan Nicholson. And he knows that people want to buy music for podcasts, for videos, for using for stuff online. Like you're an online digital maker. You want to have good music with your th offerings. So he does that. So he does it in several ways. First of all, you can just go and buy the music. That's like, you know, standard sort of thing. I don't know if I've seen it before. So it's like a clip art for music, but I, but fine, I'll have higher quality. But his really smart thing is that you can buy a monthly subscription. And you can buy a monthly subscription and then you get, you know, a new, then, then you get access to his entire catalog. Okay, also like very clever, but not super wow, amazingly brilliant. But he also has a mailing list. And if you sign up for the mailing list, you get a free song per week. And 
no, no, you know, uh, no restrictions or anything. And this is his way of incentivizing you to stay on his list and that he can hawk his wares to you. But he does it very subtly, very smartly. Basically says, here, take this music, do whatever you want with it. Oh, you want the longer version? Oh, you want the fancier version? Oh, you want other things that I've played? Sure, you can do that, but that will cost you. And I think it's just like a, a beautifully done online, like privatized consulting mix of mailing list and product and free demo. So I think it's definitely worth looking at if you're interested at all in the product space. It's definitely given me some ideas about how to do do that for me. Um, I'll also mention in terms of uh, picks and them being somewhat self-serving is uh, if you're interested in the whole training thing, I have a weekly um, mailing list, weekly newsletter that I send out to called Trainer Weekly. You can go to trainerweekly.com and sign up there. Uh, I also have a Facebook group for people in technical training. Put the link in the show notes. And I also have, hopefully by the time this this, uh, podcast goes out, I will launch my weekly Python exercise online commercial, like that is to say for pay product, which will be um, exercises for people who who program in Python. And it's, first of all, an experiment for me in terms of uh, online product. But second of all, this I hope will help me, inspire me to think about new ways for people to learn, have uh, exercises. And it'll push me also to think about how do I want people to learn a lot of new topics, either new to them or new in the Python world. So I'll put all those links in the show notes. And if you have any any questions, comments, whatever, about the whole business of training or exercises or whatnot, I'm always uh, pleased as punch to get and answer such questions. And I guess that uh, brings us to the end of the show. So, Phil, thanks so much for having a, a great idea and a nice conversation. Thanks to all of you for listening. And we'll be back next week on The Freelancer Show. Bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.